Before we get into uh, the actual sermon for today, we do have that matter of homework, right? We got we to gotta do our homework. Our homework is to memorize, for those of you that were here, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And uh, verse 8 was extra credit. And so that was our homework. I hope you guys did. I heard lots of praise reports from people that did it. And last service, uh, I asked somebody that did the homework to come and lead us in it instead of me. So is there anybody that's got it memorized and you want to come up and lead us in reciting it? Anybody? Come on. Come on. Chris, your buddy's ratting you out. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, come on. This is Chris Davis. Give him a little love. Come up here. I want you to come up here because I want you to feel my pain for a minute. I want you to see what I... Okay, here you go. Yeah, see? See what I mean? It's scary, huh? (laughs) Okay, listen, we're going to stand up as we recite the Word of God. So let's stand up. And Chris will lead us. So it's on his lead and his cadence. And you you might have a different translation than him. That's cool. The Lord will sort it out. But go ahead, Chris. Lead us in it. Do not be anxious in anything, but in all things, with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Good job. Amen. Okay, you guys can be seated. Good job, Chris. Yes. Anybody want to testify? Anybody that this week, knowing that verse, ministered to your life, God used it in your life somehow, and you'll testify about it? Love to hear what God did in your life through the Word of God this week. Okay, Paula, here, gee, can you, can you be Montel Williams? Go, get Paula the... Hi, I don't have much of a voice, I'm sorry. But I just want to say, I saw the living God today, and all week after my daughter and her son and her husband lost their children, God is alive, he's blessed this family, he's blessed us. And I've seen the love that Emily and Dom have for the Lord and the trust they put into him. And they're raising their daughter the exact same way. And I just thank you all so much that God has given us his word to go by and that there is hope in him. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paula. That's Emily's mom, Dominic's mother-in-law. Anybody else want to testify about memorizing that verse, how it worked out in your life this week? Anybody? Come on, don't be shy. Rory, okay, Rory needs a mic. Come on, G. This man, he, the microphone loves him. Okay, you only got like a minute, though. I know, I know, I know. He's a preacher. You got to call him at the mijo. No, um, well, sorry. Uh, no, yesterday we were, uh, my storm of voice kind of gone because we were evangelizing Isla Vista last night. Uh, it was Halloween, and uh, it was cool. You know, these two girls that went to Catholic school, um, you know, they were talking to him, you know, and I can tell they weren't supposed to be out there. You can just tell. You know, when people were awkward and, you know, the party scene, they're not supposed to be there. And they were like, hey, uh, one of the verses I memorized when I was a little kid was this verse. And I quoted it to them. And I kid you not, they said, you know what? We're not supposed to be here. We're going home and reading our Bible. And they wow, left. Wow, so. praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's epic. Praise God. Listen, I want to encourage you. I've heard from a lot of you the last two weeks as we've been doing this scripture memorization thing. I've heard a lot of you say, I can't memorize scripture. I I, I just can't do it. First of all, you can. You know how I know you can? Because the Lord says where to hide his word in our hearts. And so he'll help you do it. If you'll ask him, 
He'll help you to do it. He really will help you to memorize scripture. And even if you never get to the place where you can recite it and, and you can't quite pull it off the way that you'd like to, if you try, if you try, it will have an effect in your life because Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all that he taught us. And so if you try to put the word in your heart the very best that you can, you'll see that at that moment in life where you need it because you tucked it in there, you don't even know it's there anymore, the Holy Spirit will bring it up. And all of a sudden, it'll come to remembrance. You might not be able to say it, but he will cause you to live it. And so try. If you feel like, I just can't do it, it's too much for me, try. You can do it. The way that I memorize things is writing it down. I just write it over and over and over, and it gets in there. And the Holy Spirit is so faithful to minister at the right moment. Okay, well, now we're in Colossians chapter 3. And, you know, the stuff that we've been studying in Colossians chapter 3 is very challenging. It's application. You know, the first two chapters of Colossians were doctrinal, had to do with correct doctrine and theology. But this chapter is application. And it's one thing to, to study theology. It's another thing to live it. But it was meant to be lived. And, and that's where sometimes it gets difficult. And what is especially difficult about the concepts in chapter 3 of Colossians is that they're relational. Very, very relational. And and so much of just living out our Christianity comes down to how we do interpersonal relationships. That is the realm where Christianity is made manifest, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And if you're like me, you're like, man, this has been a challenging few weeks in Colossians chapter 3. I've been getting beat up and challenged and rebuked and chastened and loved by the Lord in all sorts of ways. So let's read through it again so we can get beat up one more time. No, just kidding just to remind ourselves of some of the things we've learned concerning interpersonal relationships, starting in Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you also put them all aside, that is, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Go to verse 12, please, for time's sake. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive others. Verse 14, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." Now, would you agree that that's been some pretty challenging stuff relationally, talking about putting on compassion and humility and kindness and putting off wrath and anger and malice and forgiving as we've been forgiven and and dwelling in unity together? It's been challenging, but it gets even gnarlier. Now, in verse 18, check it out, all, all the way almost through the end, it gets gnarlier. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. 
Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than men. Wow. Listen. That is jaw-dropping, nitty-gritty, in-your-face, against-the-grain, break-you-down, hits-you-at-home sort of stuff. I mean, no longer is it this ethereal, uh, you know, uh, removed theological concept. Now it's like how you live at home. Wives, how you deal with your husbands. Husbands, how you deal with your wives. Children with your parents and parents with your kids. And employees with your employers. This is real, nitty-gritty, applicational, interpersonally relational Christianity. Authentic and challenging to the very core. And I think if we're honest about it, we realize that we can't do it ourselves. Anybody honest? Anybody been working through Colossians here and saying, man, I can't do this in and of myself? You know what? As your pastor, I'm going to be this honest to say, we're not ready for verse 18. We're not ready for the next few verses. We're not going to get to them today. We're going to make sure that we've got the previous things down pat. We're going to make sure that we didn't miss the key to Christian interpersonal relationships. And that is the Holy Spirit of God. You see, I think that when we're confronted with these things, if we try, if you try to live out your Christianity, if you're not just some Sunday Christian pew potato, if you actually try to live out your Christianity, you realize, man, I can't do this. I think if you're really honest, oftentimes you realize, I don't want to do this. I don't want to forgive that person. I don't want to not be angry with him anymore. I don't want to put on compassion toward that person. I don't want to be humble toward them. And I don't want to consider them as more important than myself. And I don't even want to be unified with them. Anybody here honest? That is where the Holy Spirit comes in. You see, because in Christianity, and this is wonderful, God's commandments are his enablements. You must know that. God's commandments are his enablements. There is nothing the Lord will ever ask you to do that he is not willing to empower you to do. It's not some pie-in-the-sky thing that you can't attain to. It's not some carrot dangling out in front that you're always chasing after. When the Lord leads, he provides. God's commandments are his enablements. And that is the role of the Holy Spirit in interpersonal relationships is to empower us to live them. Now, Paul didn't necessarily make that connection for us here in Colossians, but in a very similar monologue in Ephesians, he did make that connection between the Holy Spirit and interpersonal relationships. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5, just a couple books back. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul here connecting the Holy Spirit with how we do relationships. Much for us to glean from this. We want to make sure that we get this Holy Spirit thing down before we try to finish out Colossians 3. So let's start reading in Ephesians 5 verse 18. Very famous verse. Colossians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, For that is dissipation, that is a waste or a squandering. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we have here Paul connecting the work of the Holy Spirit and how our relationships are to be lived out. And what we want to explore first is the filling of the Holy Spirit there mentioned in verse 18. Notice it says, don't get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not a comparison. That's not to say that being filled with the Holy Spirit is like being drunk with wine. The Bible doesn't teach that. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's very different. It's a contrast. Don't get drunk with wine. That's a waste. But rather let your influence be the Holy Spirit. Now, where it says there, be filled with the Holy Spirit, those words in English, be filled, represent a verb in the Greek. It is the word plerao, plerao in the Greek. And it simply means to fill or to fulfill or to complete. It's the idea of something that is empty, such as a vessel or a container. And and so plerao in the Greek, that verb means to fill completely. Now that verb in the Greek is in the imperative mood, simply means this, that when it says here to be filled, it is a command to you and I. It is a command to the Christian that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a suggestion. The Bible doesn't say here, hey, you know what? If sometime you're not busy and you got nothing else to do and you sort of feel like it a little bit, maybe why not try out being filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, if you want to, it doesn't say that. It's very clear in the construction of the Greek verb that it is an imperative. It is a command. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the other thing about that Greek verb is that it's in the present tense. And what that means is that it is to be a continuous action. It is not something that happened at a moment in time and then stopped. It is something that it is is to continue indefinitely in our lives. It is to be continuous and over and over. So it is a command that we're to be filled, and it is a command that we are to be filled over and over and over continually and continuously with the Holy Spirit. The other thing we can discern from that Greek verb in the original is that it's in the plural. That means that the filling of the Holy Spirit is for every Christian. Amen? Amen. It is for every single Christian. This is for each one of us today. And the last thing that we notice is that it's in the passive voice. And that simply means this, that the subject of the sentence, you and I, is receiving the action. The subject of the sentence is receiving the action, meaning it is not our doing. It is something that is done to us and for us. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not our doing. It is something that is done to us and for us, namely by the Father. So you could then translate very correctly and very literally there then this phrase to say, you must be, all of you, continually filled with the Holy Spirit by God. You must be, all of you, continually over and over filled with the Holy Spirit by God. Now we'll talk about how that happens in a moment. But first I want you to see what this passage describes as the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
What ensues in verses 19 through 21 are the evidences of us being filled with the Holy Spirit. Someone who is continually being filled will live this way. So it says in verse 19, we are to be speaking to one another. Speaking to one another. That's the idea of fellowship. As Christians, we're to engage in relationship. We're to engage in fellowship. We're to be involved in each other's lives. We're to be talking to each other and carrying on a relationship. And so the first sign of someone who is continually filled with the Holy Spirit is that they are longing for and engaging in relationship. Someone who's void of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they've got no hunger for the body of Christ. No desire to be knit into it or involved in it. They prefer to be a Lone Ranger Christian. But the person who is continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is the evidence of fellowship. And it says very neatly there that we're to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's cool. The second evidence is that we're to be singing to the Lord, which was what it says next in verse 19. Making melody with your heart to the Lord. The person who is being filled with the Holy Spirit just has a desire to praise and worship God. It just overflows their being. It just comes forth from them. They want to worship the Lord. They want to sing in their heart to Him. They want to engage in adoration toward the Lord. They want to offer up what the author of Hebrews called the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. They want to see Him exalted. The third evidence is that of giving thanks. As it says in verse 20, always give thanks. And really giving thanks is evidence of faith and humility. Someone who is continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit is full of faith and they are humble. Full of faith in the sense that when things don't make sense, when things go wrong, and they do, when things go wrong, we're able to still thank the Lord because we have faith. We have a sense that he's too good not to do good things in my life. He's too awesome to lead me in this place. He's going to continue to work and to glorify himself in my life. And so there is this attitude of thankfulness. And also it's combined with a sense of humility of who am I anyway that I should expect anything from the Lord. Anything he gives me other than hell is icing on the cake. The person who is continually filled with the Holy Spirit realizes this. It bursts in them faith and humility, which gives way to thankfulness in all situations. And the fourth and final in our text evidence of someone who is continually being filled with the Holy Spirit is there in verse 21 where it says that we are to be subject to one another. Someone who is continually filled with the Holy Spirit wants to be accountable and they want to be submitted. Someone who is full of the Holy Spirit wants to be accountable to the body of Christ, and they want to be submitted to other Christians. Someone who is full of themselves refuses to be held accountable and does not want to be subject to anyone. But the person that is full of the Holy Spirit desires accountability because that's a component of the Christian life and understands that we're to be submitted one to another. That we're to esteem one another is more important than ourselves. That doesn't eliminate roles within the Christian community. It doesn't eliminate wives submitting to their husbands and and, uh, people submitting to their leaders in the Christian faith. It doesn't negate those roles, but it works within those roles. 
There is to be a general air in Christianity that I am willing to make myself accountable to you and I am willing to be subject to you and you subject to me. That is the humility of Christ made evidence in our lives through the filling of the Holy Spirit. You understand? And so there are those four evidences. Fellowship, praise and worship, giving thanks, and accountability and submission for someone who is always full of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to take note that all four of those things are relational, aren't they? Those are relational. Two of them have to do with our vertical relationship, our relationship with the Lord, and two of them have to do with those many horizontal relationships. Number two and three have to do with the Lord. Number one and four have to do with those horizontal relationships. And so what we begin to discern from the Bible is this. Contrary to what I think is popular belief in Christianity, very simply, the fullness in the Holy Spirit the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, rather, in us, or, or the degree to which we are walking in the Spirit can be measured by the quality of our relationships. All sorts of other ways that people like to quantify it. But really, the degree that we are walking in the Spirit is made manifest or is evidenced by the quality of our relationships. Paul here connects the two, the filling of the Holy Spirit and how we relate with God and subsequently one another. And I want you to notice, remember I said that uh, it was in the passive voice, meaning it's not something you do in and of yourselves being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's something that is done to us and for us by the Father. That should be wonderful to you. Because that then means that God is going to begin to work in your relationships and it's going to be God's work, not your own work. Doesn't that sound good? It's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit and not you having to do hard work. It's going to be a result of God's work and not your church attendance. Notice how we don't take attendance at the door. It doesn't matter. It's the work of God in you. It's going to be a work of God in you and not the result of how much you tithe or don't tithe. I don't keep track of those things. I have no idea what anybody in here gives. It's a work of God in you. It's going to be a result of of God filling you with the third person of the Trinity. It's a he, not an it. A result of God filling you with the Holy Spirit and not the work of you or anyone else in your life. These relational things can only be set right, can only be achieved by the continual filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, follow me on this. What this then makes possible is revolutionary. It's unbelievable. Instead of our actions and reactions and attitudes concerning relationships being people-driven, it is possible that they can become spirit-driven. you got to see what I mean. Instead of our actions and reactions and attitudes being people-driven, what they do, what they say, how they perform or how they don't perform, instead of our relationships being people-driven, they can become spirit-driven. Do you understand what that means? That means that for you and I, it is possible that we no longer have to react out of insecurity. Anybody here have any insecurities? You know what happens when you react out of insecurity. Either some sort of wall goes up or some claws come out, don't they? Somebody hits that sensitive spot, which is an insecurity of ours. We react out of that relationally, and either walls go up or claws and teeth come out. 
It is possible by the continual filling of the Holy Spirit to no longer be driven relationally by insecurities, but by the power of the Spirit of God. It means that it is possible that we no longer react from fear. We do all sorts of destructive things in relationships because of fearful places. Places inside where we don't want to go, we don't want anybody to know about it. Places in our past, we don't want anybody to take us there. Topics and memories, we don't want anybody to bring out. And so we begin to build in our relational lives fortresses to deal with these fearful places. Do you understand that by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you don't have to be driven in your relationships by fear anymore, but by the Spirit of God? And this one's wonderful. It means that we could be totally free from needing the approval of people. I mean, this is revolutionary and life-changing. Do you understand the horrific things that we do seeking for the approval of men and women? the lengths to which we'll go to get the approval of somebody, all the while needing to understand that you have the approval and the acceptance and the adoption and the glory and the power and the person and the presence of the God of the universe. What do you need from man? Amen. Praise the Lord. What does the opinion of man matter when the God of the universe has wholly accepted you? And you realize that and you walk in that when you're continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And it no longer matters what that person thinks or doesn't think. Your relationships are no longer driven by your need of approval. And in that comes a freedom of the necessity to perform. That is such freedom. When you get loose from feeling like you have to perform from people and you just rest back in the acceptance of Jesus Christ... And it also sets us free from the need to get even. That's really good. When our relationships are spirit-driven, when our attitudes and actions and reactions are spirit-driven, there's no longer that sense or that desire or that need or that manipulation or that mood or that motive to get even. But we're free from that because of the work of the Lord. Now, all of these relational challenges set before us in Scripture are actual possibilities. Otherwise, God would not put them before us. But the wonderful news is it's not dependent on you and I. It's dependent on the power of God, which is why the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians connects these relational concepts with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to get our relationships right, the primary thing that we need to do is to seek the continual filling presence and power of the Spirit in our lives. And the super good news today is it's yours for the asking. Turn to Luke chapter 11 where Jesus tells us this. Luke chapter 11, please. Luke chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 9. Jesus speaking. Concerning the fact that we can ask for the Holy Spirit and have Him. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, he's speaking to his disciples, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now he gives them an illustration to really connect with them the concept of their heavenly Father wanting to give them the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 11, 
Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. You're not going to give him a snake instead of a fish, are you? Verse 12. Or if he asks for an egg, you're not going to give him a scorpion, are you? Verse 13. If you then being evil... I love how straightforward Jesus is. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for Him? You say, Britt, I'm failing in my relationships. I am so bound up in insecurity and in fear and in desiring the approval of other people and so much trying to perform and I'm failing on every front. My brother, my sister, you need the Holy Spirit. It can't be done by your work alone. It can only be done by the power of God who is the Holy Spirit working in you. And what we need to do is ask Him. And by the way, it's very explicit there in the Greek. When he says ask, it means keep on asking. When he says knock, keep on knocking. When he says seek, keep on seeking. We've got to continually ask, continually seek, continually knock for the Holy Spirit to be prevalent and working and overflowing our lives. Now, it's there for the asking, And it's necessary in moments of supernatural need. And whenever the Holy Spirit fills you, there is always a relational outcome. I want you to see it in the book of Acts. Please go to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're just going to read in verse 8 just to see, remind us of the, the promise from Jesus. It says in Acts 1, verse 8, speaking to his disciples, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Notice what he says. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He says up in verse 5, if you look at it, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there is, in Christianity, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus also refers to it as the promise of the Father. And it is the Holy Spirit coming upon the Christian for power. And so he told the disciples, stay in Jerusalem. Don't try to carry on my kingdom work until you have that power. Now, on the day of Pentecost, they received the power. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Acts 2, verse 1. It says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now this is exciting stuff. They're there in a prayer meeting. They're waiting for the promise of the Father, the baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke of. And when He comes, He comes like a rushing wind. And they look at each other and there's little tongues of fire dancing on one another's heads and they start to speak in tongues. It's pretty cool. It's the day of Pentecost. It's when the Holy Spirit first fell upon the church. And it says there that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice 
that it had a relational outcome in the Christian community. Go to verse 42. Acts 2, 42. Peter, of course, preaches that famous Pentecost sermon and thousands are saved. That was part of the outcome of the filling of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to see that there's a relational outcome within the Christian community. It says in verse 42, And they, meaning all the disciples, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you notice that they were of one mind and one accord, that they wanted to be together, that they were dwelling together in unity, that they were providing for one another's needs, that they were breaking bread in fellowship. There was sincere love. There was sincere unity. There was honest togetherness and esteeming others as more important, providing for one another. And it only came after the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because before that, the disciples, what did they do? They fought amongst themselves, didn't they? On multiple occasions in the Gospels, we see Peter and James and John and the other boys arguing about who would be the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, me and James, we're the ones. You know, and Peter, the night before the crucifixion, hey, Lord, I'm pretty sure all these other cheese balls will desert you, but I will never leave you, Lord. There was anything but unity. There was anything but humility. But after the day of Pentecost, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden now, they care for one another more than they care for themselves. They want to be together. They're breaking bread. They're providing. They're loving. And they're sharing. And they're praying. There was a relational outcome from the filling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see it again in Acts chapter 4, please. Go to Acts 4 as we see another example. A little bit of context for Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to pray at the temple and there was that lame man who hadn't walked and he was begging from the people and he's begging from Peter and John too. And Peter says, gold and silver I have not, but what I do have I give unto you. Stand up and in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And he grabbed him by the arm and he pulled him up and the Lord strengthened his legs and he began to walk and ran into the temple leaping and praising the Lord. So this guy gets healed by the power of God working through John and Peter. And the religious leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel, didn't like it. And so they arrested John and Peter, and they brought them uh, uh, before them in a trial. And so we pick it up in verse 5. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. That's a big deal. Those cats didn't all get together unless it was a big deal. This was a serious ruckus in Jerusalem. Verse 7, And when they had placed them in the center, that is Peter and John, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, or as it can be translated, having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he was already filled with the Spirit back in Acts chapter 2. But now he's being filled with the Spirit again. 
Remember that we read in Ephesians 5.18 that we are to be continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit? There is something called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is a one-time experience that every Christian must have, where we receive the power of God to live the Christian life. And after that then, after the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we experience subsequent and repeated fillings with the Holy Spirit, where we get filled fresh again with His presence and His power in our lives. And so Peter is in a moment of need. Remember, this is Peter, who the last time there was a trial, just some 40 days ago or so, when a little girl said to him, weren't you with Jesus? said, I don't know what you're saying. May God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. And he denied him three times. This was a Peter who reacted out of fear. He was afraid of what the other people in Jerusalem might think if he was identified with Jesus. He was afraid of relationships that he might lose with the leaders of Israel. He was afraid of consequences that might come upon him. But now that he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, he no longer reacts out of fear, but he acts according to truth and boldness and power. And so Peter, just now having been filled with the Holy Spirit, says in verse 8, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, that's a name he denied three times just some 40 days ago, by the name of Jesus, and then he says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah, Peter. Verse 13, now as they observe the confidence of Peter, and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That's good. I like that. Now, in verse 14, it says, In seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they ordered them to go outside of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What are we going to do about these guys? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is very apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. That is the name of Jesus. Verse 18, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking for what we have seen and what we have heard. I want you to notice the relational outcome of Peter and John being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were not afraid. They were not seeking the approval of those who they once would have done anything to have the approval of. These were the leaders of Israel. This was the Sanhedrin, the council. They would have done anything as good little Jewish boys to have the recognition and the approval of these same men. Very highly esteemed in all Israel. But now having been filled by the Holy Spirit, they're no longer acting or reacting according to fear. It's not driving their relationship anymore. They're now being driven by the Holy Spirit. And so they say it like it is. Having gained the approval of God, they could care less for the approval of men. 
That is powerful, isn't it? That is the outflow of the Holy Spirit coming into their lives. Now, I want you to see another relational outcome. Look in verse 29, later on in the story. uh, All the believers get together and they begin to pray because they've been threatened by the leaders not to teach in that name anymore. And so being threatened, they begin to pray in Acts 4.29. They say, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again. And began to speak the word of God with boldness. So there's one effect, but I want you to see the relational outcome. Verse 32. And the congregation of those who had believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's an incredible change. So far we have seen in our study of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that every time somebody namely the Christians, get filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a relational outcome. It takes people who otherwise would have been divided and afraid, and it brings them together and makes them bold and confident and one. It says that they were of one heart and that they were of one soul. I want you to see one other very potent example in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 We hook up with a cat now named Stephen. Stephen was also arrested by the Sanhedrin for his ministry. And he's on trial now before the same group of elders of Israel. And he's given his defense all through Acts chapter 7. It's very exciting to read, but we'll pick it up in verse 51 for time's sake. Acts seven fifty-one. Stephen's defense before the council. He says... You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I like that. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and see God. Verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be the Apostle Paul. And they went on stoning Stephen. If you haven't investigated stoning, you need to investigate it. It's horribly brutal. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now in the next verse, you're going to see the relational outcome of the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of Stephen. Verse 60, and falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he died. That is unbelievable. They are brutally 
murdering him. And with his last breath, he prays on their behalf. God, don't hold this sin against them. Remember, love keeps no record of wrong. This is incredible love. This is not natural. This is supernatural. This is not normal relational stuff. This is supernatural relationship. It is only possible by the filling of the Holy Spirit with his last breath. It's obvious by his prayer that he already forgave them in his heart. And yet so many of us are holding on to petty little things in our heart. Nobody's murdered you with rocks. You see, but we we can't forgive these kind of things on our own. We can't work hard enough. We can't possibly muster it up. It is only by the power of of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, it's yours for the asking, but there's this caveat. As long as you live a normal relational life, you don't need the filling of the Holy Spirit, so don't expect it. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit is for supernatural living. The power of the Holy Spirit is for when the Christian is trying to live beyond himself beyond what he is capable, outside of what he is able to bear. Supernatural, hard-pressing circumstances allow for the supernatural power of God to come into our lives. And so if you seek to live out relationships that are abnormal, otherworldly, supernatural, and godly as representatives of Jesus Christ, then you can expect, count on, and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. But you see, it's to meet supernatural needs. And if if we refuse to forgive, if we refuse to extend compassion, if we insist on maintaining a record of wrongs, if we will not be patient or kind, if we don't bear all things, then you just live in normal like the rest of the world. There's no need for you to have the power of the Holy Spirit because you're not doing anything supernatural. But if you seek to live out Relational Christian ideals, as we've seen in Colossians chapter 3, that's supernatural living. That requires the filling of the Holy Spirit. And if you endeavor to live that way, you can count that God will empower you to do just that. But if you refuse to do it, if you're going to hold on to that thing and you refuse to forgive, don't expect for it. Don't, don't, Don't expect it. You refuse to let those things go. In fact, it's worse than not just having the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we can actually grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that that happens in the context of relationships. I, I want to look at that. The last thing we'll look at, go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have this very famous verse in verse 30 concerning the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We've heard that before. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean in this context to grieve? It means to make sad or to offend. When you put it in common vernacular like that, you go, Oh yeah, totally. 
I don't want to offend the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I don't want to make them sad. That resonates with us. That, that should make us as the children of God not want to do anything that would offend or make sad the Spirit of God. It's like that with my son. You know what I mean? Sometimes when he's rude to my wife, you know, my wife will say, Isaiah, I want you to go pick up your room. He's five, so sometimes he'll respond by going, <laughs> you know, he's five. That's what they do. And it's so rude to do to your mother. And she will kneel down in his face and she'll say, son, that makes mommy very sad. That hurts me when you respond to me in that way. He goes, I'm sorry, because he loves his mama. He he doesn't want to make his mom sad. He doesn't want to offend his mom. It, It connects with him and it changes his behavior. It ought to change our behavior. When the Bible tells us that we as the children of God can offend, can grieve the Spirit of God. Now, how do we do that? Well, that happens in our horizontal relationships. You must look at this verse in context. The context of the entire chapter is how we live out our relationships as a Christian community. It starts out in verse 1. Where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we see that the outset of the chapter, it's all about maintaining interpersonal relationships in a right way in the Christian community. It picks it up if we are to look at verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth to one another, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We see it in verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer. We see it in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And right after in verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. You see that this phrase that we are often familiar with, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is embedded in the context of our relationships with one another. You cannot rip it from that. The Bible teaches that the way that we bum the Spirit of God out is by mistreating one another. That is so potent in my mind. The way that we bum and offend the Spirit of God is by mistreating one another in our interpersonal relationships. That ought to change the way that we behave. It also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Now, it's the same thing in that chapter. The broad context is the end time scenario, but the immediate context around verse 19 is how we live in light of that. And tucked into how we live in those relationships, one more time there, it says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Again, it has to do with how we relate to one another. And what does it mean to quench? It's the idea of extinguishing a fire. Other translations put it this way. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not suppress the Holy Spirit. Do not turn away or hold back the Holy Spirit. And so... When we miss this thing relationally and we don't endeavor to follow scriptural teaching on how we live with one another, we can not only grieve, make sad and offend the Holy Spirit, but we can quench, which is to stifle, suppress, 
turn away and hold back. And I can't think of a more tragic concept than the Spirit of God wanting to work in your life, wanting to work in our lives, and then us, because of our refusal to be subject to one another, to live in unity, to love one another, to esteem each other as more important than ourselves, because of our refusal, pushing the Holy Spirit out of our lives, limiting the work of God in your life because you can't get over it with that person. I can't think of a more tragic thing. We're not ready for verse 18 of Colossians 3 until we get this thing of the Holy Spirit right. People, we need him. We as a church need to cry out for him like never before. We need to beg the Father for the promise of the Father that the Holy Spirit would fall upon us and fill us corporately and individually that we might do this relationship thing. Jesus said we'd be recognized by our love for one another. And the outflow of the Holy Spirit, again, the measure of it is always relational. It is not all these other hocus-pocus things. It is always relational. The fruit of the Spirit is love, relational. Joy, relational. Peace, relational. Patience, relational. Kindness, relational. Goodness, relational. Faithfulness, relational. Gentleness, relational. Self-control, relational. The litmus test for whether or not we are walking in the Spirit is a quality of our relationships. So we need to ask, Lord, I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to quench you. I want to be full. I want to be full to overflowing and just saying, Lord, I can't do it. I can't get over it in and of myself. I need you, Lord. I want to forgive supernaturally and supernatural power is available for you. Amen? Lord, thank you for this word. I'm asking now that, Holy Spirit, you would come. We are so in need of you. Holy Spirit, we need you. God, we need you. Third person of the Trinity, we need you to fill and overflow, immerse and consume us, Lord. We are too consumed with self. Free us, Lord. Our relational dealings are too driven by fear and insecurity and the idea of revenge and all these other things. Lord, we want to be delivered today. Holy Spirit, come with your power in this place. Come with your power, Holy Spirit.